All right. Welcome back to another episode of Leap Into Wellness. I'm your host, Kyle Pfaffenbach. Joining me today is uh, my co-host, Anya Schooler, who is the Leap Lab intern here at EOU. I teach physiology and nutrition here, and I also... Uh, along with Anya, we run the Leap and Wellness program for uh, teachers and staff at LeGrand School District. So we're bringing you these podcasts uh, on a weekly basis to talk about the things that we've heard feedback from you all about what you, what you want to hear about and what you want to learn about. So how are you doing, Anya? I'm doing good. Good. We're about halfway through the semester now. How's the yeah, it's how's crazy. the term going? It feels like it's going super fast. Yeah, it's just too fast. So I'm I'm gonna say this out front before you all get bored and fall asleep listening to this or or don't listen to the end. Um, you know, we have open spots for health assessment and teacher testing here in the lab, and it's a really cool opportunity. It's it's very chill. Um, we don't do any type of like max testing or, or anything like that, but we do provide you with really usable information to start your walking program, strength program. Um, we usually end up having really interesting conversations with the folks that come in about what their situation is and what their health and wellness goals are. We look at stress levels. Um, and it's just a lot of fun. It's a really cool opportunity. It's probably on the open market. It's probably about five or $600 worth of, uh, physiology testing. And we have the facility here at EOU and we have the collaboration, uh, thanks to Scott Carpenter with you all. And so, uh, we really want to encourage you to take advantage of that. You have anything to add to that, Anya? People who have come in for testing have provided us with a lot of good topics for this podcast. And from what I've seen, it's been a cool jumping off point for a lot of people. They come in and they do the tests and then they're like, I have other questions and other things I want to explore now based on what we do in the lab. So that's been one of my favorite things so far. Absolutely. And that that's a great segue into today's topic, which is going to be discussing blood sugar and insulin sensitivity. And this is something that people have asked a lot about. We'll probably have to do another one of these, but one of the reasons why we want to do this is because on February, sometime in the last week of February, um, that week of like February 25th through the 29th, um, we are having another cooking class up at the teaching uh, kitchen in the high school. So Anya will be leading that. Everybody from the school is invited, um, and we would love to see you there. And so Anya is going to cook a delicious recipe that's healthy and quick and and um, meets a lot of the needs from a dietary, from a healthy dietary perspective. Um, and so we thought this was a really good opportunity to, one, take this podcast to talk about uh, blood sugar, insulin resistance, um, and some aspects uh, related to that and how we can think about it in our everyday life. And then uh, that will set us up with a lot of really good information for why we consider certain aspects of uh, the, the cooking class meal as being healthy. And so this is sort of a two-parter where we wanna set up some background um, about blood sugar, and then we'll also do a podcast where we talk about um, why it's a, a healthy meal that we're gonna be cooking, and then you guys can engage in the cooking class, and we hope you do. Is that? That sounds amazing. Okay, good. Awesome. All right. Specifically, people have had questions about blood sugar spikes. 
and controlling blood sugar spikes. I think we have to back up, before we talk about applying this, I think we have to back up just a little bit and get on the same page with some of the basic physiology of what's happening here. And so there's sort of these assumptions because of what we know or don't know about blood sugar and type 2 diabetes particularly. I think there's some misconceptions about glucose and insulin. So I just want to like lay a a really simple, easy foundation. I promise this will be quick. Uh, So first of all, we always want to maintain a certain level of blood sugar and it stays between anywhere from 75 milligrams per deciliter up to anything under 100 is considered healthy. Once you start getting over a hundred and up into 120 in terms of fasting, blood sugar, that's an indicator of um, high fasting blood sugar and like pre-diabetes or early type 2 diabetes. All right. So we do have the capability at various times to raise blood sugar above that. And it really gives us no different feeling. So if, if blood sugar goes below the low end, you will pass out. It's not good to have low blood sugar. Um, If the blood sugar goes above that level, we are actually built to do that. And the reason why we're built to do that is because we want to be able to store some of that sugar that we have access to eating it when we eat it. So what happens when you eat is your carbohydrates or or bread or sugar or the things that have glucose in it and, and carbohydrates in it, they get broken down into their individual sugars in your gut and they get absorbed. Some of it gets taken up by your liver and the rest of it goes out into your general circulation. That's what gets sampled when we sample blood sugar. So as that blood sugar rises, there is a, it, it is, that blood sugar rise is sensed by the pancreas and the pancreas releases a hormone called insulin. And insulin has multiple roles. Um, the, the first really important take home I want you all to think about is that insulin is only released under conditions when we're rested. This is really important. And because insulin does more than just bring blood sugar down, it also turns on different physiologic processes that can take place when we have a lot of food and we're rested. And that's the only time insulin is elevated. Okay, so we have this scenario where you eat a big pasta meal, your blood sugar goes up, your insulin goes up, and then your blood sugar comes down. And if we do that process at rest, where we introduce a bunch of sugar and we rely on insulin to bring our blood sugar down, if we do that too many times throughout the day for years upon years, and we don't do other things that improve our insulin sensitivity like exercise, or we don't use the energy that we're stuffing into our cells during those times with things like exercise, then we begin to develop a resistance to insulin because we just have too much insulin in the system and the cells stop responding to it because they're just overstimulated by insulin. We doing okay so far? Yeah, makes sense. Okay. Uh, jump in if, if you think there's like points of clarification that we need. So this is how type 2 diabetes develops is, is it's called insulin resistance because 
And this is different than type 1 diabetes, which is an autoimmune disease, whereby your immune system attacks and kills the cells that make insulin. So you can't even produce insulin. But in type 2 diabetes, people can produce insulin, but they just can't utilize it effectively. And so this is actually really important because just like we talked about last week with blood pressure, insulin and insulin resistant works on a continuum. So it will slowly develop over time. And if you kind of nip it in the bud before it gets too severe, there are things you can do to reverse insulin resistance and improve insulin sensitivity. And so the, the opening question was about how do we kind of control these blood sugar spikes and how do we, how do we lessen them? And because different foods cause different levels of increase in blood sugar and the characteristic assigned to the ability of a food to cause a rise in blood sugar is called the glycemic index. So a high glycemic index food would be something like a grape. So grapes cause a really high, sharp spike in uh, insulin. They're, they're affectionately called sugar bombs. <laughs> and whereas something like whole grain pasta or whole grain bread is going to have less of a glycemic index because it's a more complex food that takes longer to break down. It gets into your bloodstream in a longer period of time. And so the, the blood glucose spike and therefore the insulin spike aren't as high. How are we doing? It was just funny. In the last cooking class we did, grapes were part of the meal. And we had talked about it in our last nutrition class and people were like, what? <laughs> we're eating grapes. And just because something has a high glycemic index doesn't mean that it's a bad food. Correct. So, so there's two things here. This is actually, you know, this is amazing coincidence because I, I didn't know your, your uh, last recipe had grapes in it. The glycemic index index of a food when you eat it in isolation is completely different than its effect on blood sugar when you eat it with a mixed meal. So if you're going to eat grapes, and grapes do have a lot of healthy, they have tannins, they have antioxidants, they have vitamins, and grapes can be healthy for you, but eating grapes as a healthy snack probably not a good idea because you're just randomly causing a big blood sugar spike outside of a meal in the middle of a day. But including grapes under one blood glucose curve and one insulin curve in response to a meal, probably okay because you are eating it in the context of a mixed meal and that really makes a big difference. Right. I think it would be interesting to talk a little bit about why eating high glycemic index foods in conjunction with other foods causes a change in blood sugar spike. So in the meal we made, grapes were part of a spinach salad that had feta cheese and lemon juice, and the spinach had a lot of fiber. So there was fat and fiber in that salad. And it's interesting, when you eat any food that has carbohydrates, they're absorbed in your small intestine. Yep. And when you have fiber and you have fat that you're eating at the same time, fat especially slows the rate. It's called gastric emptying. So you have food in your stomach. If there's fat in that food, your stomach is going to release it slower. So you're going to have a slower release of that sugar into your bloodstream. So when we talk about differences in glycemic index, that's kind of at the heart of it. Yeah, it is. So, so it's really important. This is a really important point. So Glycemic index of grapes in and of grapes alone is very, very high. 
there's a lot of fruit. Strawberries have a really high glycemic index. So do blueberries. Those, those fruits have a lot of sugar in them. It's just, fruit, yes, fruits are healthy for you, but they do have a lot of sugar, okay? And if you eat those things alone, they're going to cause your blood sugar to spike really high, which is going to cause an insulin spike to go really high. And when you combine them with food, this is why adding strawberries to a spinach salad that also has walnuts and feta cheese and other things like this, or adding grapes to a salad that has feta cheese and protein. And, and as Anya said, when you mix all those foods together, you slow down the rate at which your gut can process them. So you reduce uh, the speed at which they get to the small intestine, and that's where the absorption takes place. And when you eat mixed meals, you reduce that speed. And this is, a, this is something we actually do uh, with our exercise physiology students in the lab, where we actually have them come in and, and they'll drink like liquid sugar, which is the fastest absorbing kind of worst glycemic thing that you can do. I had to do this experiment. Okay. <laughs> so, so say you drink 50 grams of sugar in orange juice, it causes a massive glucose spike and it's very, very quick. And if you eat the exact same amount of carbohydrates, but in a say protein bar that also has fat in it, it's a completely different blood glucose curve and we plot those curves. And so we actually show our students this in the lab by, by doing these experiments. So that you get this idea of really the impact. Now, if you didn't just drink a big glass of orange juice that had 50 grams of, of carbohydrates in it by itself, and you drank a glass of orange juice with eggs and say like cooked turkey and spinach and it's probably not gonna give you as high of a glucose spike because you've added it with a mixed meal that slows down the digestion the rate of digestion and this is really important there's one more thing i want to touch on here someone had a specific question about within a single meal does it matter what order you eat your macronutrients in? For example, should you eat carbohydrates after you eat protein and fat? And yeah, so, so this is actually really good. This is a, such a cool question, and it shows just how much you guys are thinking about it. So I'm very impressed. I wish we had who gave us that so we could give it a was, shout out. It was my mom, actually. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think she'll mind me telling us. Okay, well, shout out to, to Mrs. Schooler and... Uh, this is, a, this is a very, very good question. So yes, it matters because the, the, the order that they get through your, they get exposed to your stomach. It, if you drink a big glass of orange juice and then you start eating, the orange juice has a head start for a variety of reasons. One, it's liquid, so it's going to get down your esophagus and through your stomach faster. Two, there's nothing in your stomach at the time the orange juice hits it, and so it's going to go um, straight through and into your small intestine. And then your small intestine is going to start working on that first, and everything else coming behind it it's, it's like a double whammy. It's, it's not only going to be slower because it's a mixed meal, but it also is behind. It doesn't get the head start. Yeah, thanks. I just wanted to address that before we moved no, on. No, it's, it's a really cool question, especially when you start thinking about this. So, so this is actually one of the most impactful things you all can do when you're making meal decisions and things like that. Because the thing you want to remember about insulin is it's not just a hormone that causes a decrease in sugar. And... The, the, one of the interesting things about 
insulin is that it also is involved in a lot of other processes in the body, one of which is that it suppresses fat breakdown and it promotes fat storage. And that's because when our body has carbohydrates, it prefers to use them. And we can talk about higher protein diets and lower carbohydrate diets later on, but one of the reasons why these things work is because they, they reduce the preferred macronutrient that your body wants to use, and they force your body to use more fat as a fuel. But if I'm going through the day, and so then I wake up, and let's say, like, I eat a bagel, and so now I have high insulin and high carbs, so I'm not burning any fat. And then I go, I go into the office or I go into the school and someone brought donuts. So I eat a donut and that's another insulin spike. And then and every one of these insulin spikes takes anywhere from 80 to 90 minutes to come back down, right? And then I go to lunch and I have a sandwich and I have some potato chips and let's say I drink a non-diet soda. There's another big insulin spike and a bunch of sugar in the system. So you've basically gone through the entire day with plenty of carbohydrates and lots of insulin. So throughout that entire day, this hypothetical individual that I just made up is always using carbs as fuel, never using fat, always suppressing fat breakdown and always promoting fat storage. So the the reason why people gain fat mass when they're overeating and eating a lot of carbohydrates is not because the carbohydrates turn to f- turn into fat. It's because the fat never gets used because there's always the body's preferred fuel source. So the basic take home here um, is that you really want to be thinking about when you decide when you're deciding what type of food that you're eating as a snack for example you really want to ask yourself if this is going to spike my blood glucose and my insulin because i'm probably in a good fat burning zone right now or you want to mix in a little less carbohydrates into your meals so that you know you have enough sugar and carbohydrate to give you energy and make your brain happy but you aren't overloading the system in a way that um, is causing too much insulin and too much blood sugar too often. You want to think about this with your drinks as well. You don't want to drink drinks that are just randomly going to cause a blood sugar spike. So as you're going through the day, you really want to think about, okay, is this a nice mixed meal? Does it have some carbs? It's got plenty of protein. It's got plenty of fat. And if I get enough protein in that meal, I'm going to make it to lunch without getting hungry. And if I have plenty of protein in my lunch, I'm going to make it to dinner without getting hungry. And all through that day, you'll burn a nice combination of carbs and fat. And that will really help. I think that in the next episode, we're going to go more into components of meals and meal planning and principles around creating a nutritious meal. But there's one more more thing I want to touch on with blood sugar before we wrap up today. And that's the impact of exercise on blood glucose. Another cool thing that we do in the lab with that oral glucose tolerance test, we not only track the glucose curve just at rest, we also have someone eat sugar, put a bunch of sugar in their system, and then walk and see the effect of that on their glucose spike. In the context of what we're talking about, walking would be considered a low-intensity exercise. And that has been shown to have a modulatory effect on a glucose spike. Absolutely. So let me ask you this. Uh, When a person eats a high-carbohydrate meal and immediately goes for a walk, does their blood sugar come down because of insulin? No. 
No. So this is the thing that's really, really interesting is in, this is another critical take home. So I'm really glad you brought this up, which is that we only release insulin when we have high sugar and we're at rest. And so when we are not at rest, when we're exercising, even a brisk walk, so just a, a yeah, just a brisk steady state walk is enough of a stimulus to suppress insulin, but we still lower blood sugar because muscle contraction has the same effect that insulin does in terms of clearing glucose. So if you've been, you know, told that, okay, your blood sugar is kind of getting up there a little bit, you need to start watching your diet, you need to start exercising. The timing of your exercise in regards to managing those things can be really, really important where if you go for even a 10 or 15 minute walk after a meal, it has a massive effect on controlling blood sugar. It has a massive effect on controlling blood sugar. And in the post-exercise state, our muscles actually become more insulin sensitive. So even uh, pre-meal pre, pre exercise will improve your blood sugar. Post-meal exercise will improve your blood sugar for two different reasons. But the point is, is that exercise around meal times um, can be one of the most um, like effective strategies for monitoring and controlling blood sugar. Nice. So I think that we've touched on a lot of really interesting aspects of blood sugar, how the foods you eat impact blood sugar and things that you can do to control your blood sugar throughout the day. Yeah, this is a super interesting topic. To, and, and I just think I would encourage you guys just just be wary of like quick fixes and massive promises that you find when you can go and search us on the web, because there's just there's a lot of people that overcomplicate this. The reality is just, just remember these few things that if your body has carbs, it's going to use them and it's not going to use fat. Number two, we release insulin when we're at rest. And when we eat sugar, we have an increase in blood sugar and we want to try and limit those increases in blood sugar and the increases in insulin throughout the day and using exercise or reducing the number of carbohydrates you eat and reducing the number of carbohydrate snacks and reducing the number of sugary drinks that you're consuming, then you're, that's 90% of the game right there. And uh, yeah, I think those are like usable action items. And um, it's something that, yeah, this, this doesn't have to be overwhelming or complicated. You can just implement those things immediately and you'll start to notice the difference. If you have other questions about blood sugar or anything else, let us know. Send us your questions. And we'll be back next week with some more practical nutrition strategies around meal planning. Sounds great. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Guys.